Welcome to Connect the Dots, a podcast produced by the Center for Progressive Reform with your host, Rob Verchik. Hi, everyone. Today, we'll be talking about climate change and the displacement of people and communities. Over the course of history, displacement and migration has happened for all kinds of reasons, as a response to economic upheaval, armed conflict, and of course, natural disasters. Think of the tens of thousands of Americans who have been leaving Puerto Rico for the mainland of the United States over the last few months. As it turns out, a growing number of experts believe that the impacts of climate change will spur a new era of human displacement and migration within the United States and abroad. There are ways to address that challenge, but first we have to connect the dots. Our show today has two parts. First, I'll be talking with Maxine Burkett, a legal expert in climate migration. Second, we'll hear a set of many interviews that I conducted recently with participants of the Conference on Climate Change Migration, organized by the IBS Center for Climate Physics and held in Busan, South Korea. Up first is Professor Maxine Burkett of the University of Hawaii Law School. She's a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and a member scholar of the Center for Progressive Reform. Maxine is joining us from her home in Honolulu, Hawaii. Maxine, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to uh, be talking with you virtually. I have a question that I want to ask, because in the, in the press, uh, when we read about climate change, there's been a phrase, climate refugees, that has come up over and over again. Sometimes it's describing people in the United States who might be leaving an area that is flooded or threatened by climate change. Uh, in other uh, contexts, we're, we're talking about people who uh, might be in uh, small island nations like Palau, where the Maldives also worried about sea level rise. I know that in your own uh, writing, you tend to use the word climate displaced persons. Who are climate displaced persons and why are their challenges important for us to understand? Yeah, climate displaced persons are those that are on the move as a result of some kind of climate related event that uh, has occurred in their home location, wherever they're uh, living currently. And um, what we know is that the term climate refugee is very evocative because it suggests that people are on the move. And it is true that, in fact, the circumstances of, of movement are in some cases as dire as those as, that we understand for uh, political refugees, for example. But it, legally, there isn't a, a hook, if you will. There isn't a legal stipulation. There aren't a set of um, uh, legal instruments that effectively respond to the circumstances of those that are moving because of climate-induced um, events. And so we, uh, we sort of do a disservice to those that are currently political refugees and those that have this very unique circumstance uh, when we don't uh, describe them in the way that's, that's legally uh, afforded and legally appropriate. So climate displaced persons, again, um, a, a growing number of people who will move internally and cross-border as a result of some sort of climate impact that is either acute, sudden onset, or uh, slower events like uh, desertification, high temperatures, sea level rise, uh, constant um, inundation because of flooding events. I noticed one study where the UN estimates that by 2050, climate change uh, may displace as many as 200 million people in the world. I mean, obviously, that sounds like, like a huge number. And I'm wondering what kinds of legal instruments 
uh, or, or legal agreements do we have on hand to address a problem like that? Yeah, I, I just to address the issue of the numbers first and then talking about the difficulty that the law and people that work in this area find themselves in is that, you know, there is an incredible range uh, that has been estimated for people on the move. And it's I've seen numbers as low as 25 million, still a large number, but compared to the 1 billion or 2 billion most recently that was uh, estimated in a study that came out this past fall, we know that this could be um, a massive uh, humanitarian and management problem across countries, within and across countries, uh, and we have no real sense of scope. Uh, and in fact, numbers like 200 million by 2050 uh, say something about who might be moving at that time or who might have moved and completed the move. Or We're also not really even sure of whether or not we're talking about those that are that are resettled or those that are actually in that moment uh, in, in the process of moving. Well, let me ask you about the, the international effects first. So this, I guess, would be the cross-border types of migration or, or displacement. person can't legally claim to be a climate refugee, right, in, in, in the sense of, of having any kinds of entitlements under international agreements. Uh, can you walk us through that? Why is that? That is, why don't we have a legal status of, of climate refugee? And um, and I guess the next question would be, should we? Should we have something like that? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And uh, I, I'll answer it in, in, in the first part in three ways. Why are the, what is the, the current legal infrastructure internationally? Uh, we have a refugee convention, and the refugee convention has a very specific definition of what it means to be a refugee. And it's uh, in, in that case, it's about people that are moving as a result of some kind of persecution that's happening um, uh, at the hands of their government and because of their membership in a certain class, whether it's race, religion, um, uh, uh, nationality. There, there are a whole host of categories that you could be uh, identify yourself as a part of, and the need to move is an urgent one because of some kind of um, experience or threat of persecution. And with that comes a whole suite of protections and obligations that kick in by the uh, the nations that have signed on to the Refugee Convention in order to meet the, the your your rights to a whole host of other sets of human rights that we all um, hold dear. Um, the problem, of course, is that we don't have, in the circumstances of climate change, most often those uh, triggers, uh, membership of a certain class, urgency, persecution, it's particularly persecution at the hands of your government. Uh, in some respects, this whole phenomenon of climate migration has been marked by leaders that are actually hoping to assist their, uh, their citizens in the process of moving. That's certainly true in the Pacific, where we see a number of Pacific Island nations uh, being able to, uh, in a very uh, compelling and persuasive way describe their desire to assist their citizens in the uh, the move that they anticipate for in their in their um, foreseeable future so we have this difficulty of not having an appropriate definition to that encompasses the circumstances of climate induced migration there are circumstances though where you might be able to appeal to the refugee definition uh, because of a climate Induced event. So, in some respects, we see uh, the sort of fingerprints of climate change in this in the the Syrian refugee crisis. Very complicated, 
absolutely important that we don't absolve um, political leaders who've made terrible choices um, and are indeed persecuting their um, citizens irrespective of the environmental conditions that um, that exist. But we do see that there are circumstances, if we take Syria as a cautionary tale, there are circumstances in which environmental stressors can actually introduce circumstances that then um, uh, uh, produce a, a refugee crisis itself. So if a multi-year drought uh, pushes a number of uh, otherwise agricultural um, uh, a number of, of farmers, for example, into urban areas, and we see this sort of cascading set of events that produce a refugee crisis that has um, very much uh, been predominant in the in the political realities of of, of, of Europe. Um, we can see that there is a link between climate and refugee, but it's really attenuated, and uh, and and then becomes more of a political refugee circumstance understood in the traditional way in which uh, in the traditional. Um, understanding of what the refugee convention is meant to address. The last thing I'll say about the refugee definition is that there are no specific appeals under the international, um, existing international law and treaties. However, we see New Zealand, for example, being quite um, intrepid in their willingness to uh, engage with the possibility of a climate refugee as a, a very real phenomenon. And in fact, we see they have a proposal under their um, new administration that is looking at uh, establishing a climate refugee visa. And, and all of the parameters and the specifics of that, I think, are um, in progress. But I think that process of actually making the decision to explore a climate refugee visa status suggests that we are at the point where we find it necessary and, in fact, helpful for countries individually or in concert to make decisions about how we manage this. Oh, now that's interesting. So in the example of New Zealand, is, is, is that a situation in which the New Zealand government is negotiating a status with other nations? Or is this something that they might just offer uh, universally? Yeah, my understanding is that it is a kind of unilateral decision making that they're engaging in, and uh, and this would be you know one of potentially uh, a whole set of um, regimes that they have in terms of labor migration and other ways in which you might be able to access um, New Zealand, uh, whether it's the, the to see to be with your family that is already there or to um, participate in the existing labor markets. Um, this is. Un my understanding, a very standalone approach to engaging the very real uh, circumstances, political circumstances of their neighbors. And, and it's perhaps no surprise that New Zealand, proximate to the, the South Pacific and the number of Pacific Islanders that are uh, having to move and hosting um, a, a significant um, Pacific Islands population, of course, themselves being a, quite a, a, a Pacific-oriented country with the, the, the Maori citizens, they've been much more progressive in all so sorts of uh, approaches to thinking about the, the climate, the impacts of climate change on the region. It would seem to me that one issue, obviously, is, is for uh, members of a country who might be crossing borders to be able to enter a different country. 
uh, that's a legal problem that we've just discussed. But there, there seem to be huge financial implications to this too, right? I mean, it's expensive for people to move individually. It's even more expensive for, for communities to, to uproot and decide to go somewhere else. What are the kinds of funds that we have available internationally to help with this? And, and are they sufficient? I, I can answer the second question first, very briefly. They're not sufficient. <laughs> uh, I, I could have figured that. All right. <laughs> I mean, and that's, and that's true for climate change across the board. And I think um, what right. will be important to consider is that uh, climate change, uh, the, both the process of mitigation and adaptation are under-resourced, and specifically adaptation efforts, the efforts that will allow for communities to, uh, be, to build their resilience in response to climate impacts. Um, is woefully underfunded. I want to ask you uh, about the internally displaced populations that you mentioned earlier. And, and I thought that maybe this would be a good time to move our discussion to the United States, uh, because although a lot of people don't realize that there, there is uh, an issue with, uh, with the potential for populations being displaced within the United States. And in fact, uh, a researcher that we know, Matt Hauer at the University of Georgia, has, um, has uh, speculated that by 2100, we may see as many as 13 million people displaced by sea level rise just in the United States, mainly, of course, uh, from population centers that are really close to the coast. What do you... What do you see as the major issues in terms of uh, climate displacement in the United States? Is, is it, again, problems with legal infrastructure and financial resources? Does it come down to that again? That's definitely at play. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, we do, we are seeing climate-induced migration impact the United States. It's, it, we're not immune to it. And uh, we also have it in the popular imagination with respect to, uh, again, like you mentioned, the, the kind of the climate refugees that were noted during the, Katrina and uh, Harvey and Maria. Uh, but in fact, some of the impacts in the U.S. that are the most um, have been the most uh, impactful over time, uh, and perhaps not as 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 uh, as immediately understood are the impacts that are slower onset. So in Alaska, for example, we have had uh, almost a generation of efforts to uh, get ahead of what is essentially a crumbling uh, crumbling infrastructure and crumbling communities and cultures as a result because of the the, the incredible um, heat increase that we're seeing in the Arctic region that's impacting people's livelihoods, their um, their cultural subsistence uh, lifeways, um, literally the roads and buildings and schools. And so there have been years of, of efforts to move those communities to places that are safer for them as the sea ice in particular melts and as storms increase. So we have these slower onset events in the U.S. that are also happening that don't capture the imagination as readily, uh, but are still as um, as as... Uh, devastating um, and create an upheaval uh, and a management problem that we have been hobbling along with. Uh, Louisiana now has seen um, in the coastal regions in the Delta and with the Ile de Jean Charles in particular, uh, uh, the opportunity both to receive funding from the federal government for some early efforts at, at migration uh, relocation. Um, uh, but it also has allowed for there to be um, another, a more nuanced conversation about migration in the U.S. that's on the slow onset um, piece. But that that particular um, relocation 
reveals some of the difficulties that we have in planning around this in the U.S. Um, the funding is insufficient. Uh, there are a number of actors at all sorts of scales that have to coordinate and have a hard time with that. So, for example, whether it's everyone from the, the tribal um, leadership to the state government to the federal government that's um, funding, there are coordination issues that make for a, a less than seamless process of determining when to go, who can go, and where to go, and how to uh, reestablish communities in those spaces. Is there an example of a successful relocation? Uh, we have seen resilient stories in the Pacific Northwest, the Quinault tribe in particular, in which uh, relocation was sort of less ceremonious in that it was done understanding that they were kind of caught between uh, the sort of sea level rise and flooding uh, and melting, and they had to move. And they they coordinated with themselves, maintained a fair degree of autonomy, and have been cited by uh, a number of even federal entities as providing examples of how you can maintain resilience through, through relocation. So we've had different kinds of stories of that. Uh, and, and again, we see it happening in the U.S. and I think will continue to happen uh, in more or less coordinated ways. And we should say uh, that you and I both participated in, in writing a study with CPR, uh, our CPR uh, policy analyst, David Flores. We wrote a report uh, that was released last year called Reaching Higher Ground, which is about several communities uh, that we identified in the United States that were uh, that we're planning relocation efforts in response to climate change. And those communities, all of which were tribal, uh, uh, represented communities up in Alaska, uh, on the uh, Olympic Peninsula of Washington State, and of course down uh, on Ile de Jean Charles, as you pointed out, in Louisiana. Uh, in time, I, I, I suppose that the Congress is going to have to think about a better approach to this issue as the problem becomes more acute, particularly as larger population centers begin to experience the problems that smaller Alaska Native villages, for instance, are now experiencing. Maxine, if you could wave a wand and create a bill and a Congress uh, that was focused on climate displacement in the United States, what would a bill like that look like? We have governance challenges. There's a lack of a governing, governing agency with a mandate or funding for relocation. There's no real institutional framework to determine when relocation is necessary, to determine the suitability of host communities. This kind of coordination would be um, a, a real advantage as we continue to think about the communities that are going to be relocated. There was, at the close of the Obama administration, a proposal for an interagency task force that would actually be a coordinating body for to do just this. And the initial question, of course, would be, well, what is the problem that we're dealing with? What's the scope? And what is the best management infrastructure? And so I think we would need for Congress to consider that initial step of scoping uh, well, relatively rapidly. We don't have time to just study this. We actually have to act on it. But then to actually think about what is the appropriate um, governing infrastructure, an agency may be the best way to do that, um, uh, or some way for the federal government to serve as a, a coordinating um, body uh, to allow for cross-sector, departmental, um, state-level organization and c conversation. Uh, also, of course, funding will be important to understand to, to better support the communities as they 
understand their vulnerabilities and what the best possible outcome might be. Right now, we could look at something like the Denali Commission, which has worked over years in Alaska as a um, as a body that has been had a coordinating function um, that has recognized as much as it could uh, the uh, autonomy of the communities that are moving um, and has had as a commission the flexibility to, uh, that the flexibility to um, uh, to combine, combine and transfer different sources of funds and uh, and to work again with various communities to at least scope out the best possible response. It's not been executed with perfection, but these are the kinds of flexible instruments we could do in the interim while we find a more um, longstanding uh, 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 governing body that can do the work. Maxine, thanks so much for our conversation today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to CPR's Connect the Dots. That was my interview with Maxine Burkett, a professor of law at the University of Hawaii and a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's also a member scholar of the Center for Progressive Reform. Up next, we'll hear a set of mini-interviews that I had recently with participants of the Conference on Climate Change Migration, organized by the IBS Center for Climate Physics, held in Busan, South Korea. We'll hear that after this short break. This is Brian Gum, the Communications Director at the Center for Progressive Reform. You're listening to Rob Verchik on Connect the Dots. Rob is one of 60 member scholars here at the Center for Progressive Reform with expertise in environmental health, safety, natural resources, and energy policy. To tap into this wealth of knowledge, visit www.progressivereform.org. Two things I really love about academics. One is working with students who are always passionate and curious about the environmental issues that they are working on. And the second is that if you play it right, you get to go to some conferences with some very interesting people in some interesting parts of the world. Last December in 2017, I was invited to go to a climate change migration conference that was organized by the IBS Center for Climate Physics and held in Busan, South Korea. For people who attend these kinds of academic conferences, it's common to say that no matter how good the presentations and slide decks are, some of the best things, most interesting things that you learn come from individual discussions you have in the hallway. So during this trip to South Korea, instead of bringing my camera, I brought my audio recorder. And I buttonholed a few people that I thought you might like to hear from. Now, this was buttonholing, not stalking. Uh, everybody was very, very nice. And we were out by the coffee bar or in the banquet hall, or in one case, by a piano. You'll hear a piano. And I, I asked these folks uh, just two questions. One question was, in your line of work, what is it about climate that concerns you the most? And the second question was, are there any glimmers of hope on the horizon? Let's start with the challenges first. Here's Mark Thomas, professor of evolutionary genetics at University College at London. Well, the biggest challenge, I think, and it's just the elephant in the room, is um, uh, the whole principle of the tragedy of the commons. Um, it, it's this, the, sim the simple fact is that um, people won't all work together to change something globally if there's going to be uh, significant gains by not acting as one of the group. 
Um, and so I, I, I think that is the elephant in the room. I don't see an obvious solution for it. I mean, I think it's evidenced already that both large and small countries are pulling out of various climate agreements and they're just following the standard rules of the tragedy of the commons. So, you know, um, that's a problem. Here's Peter Dominical, a paleoclimatologist at Lamont Dougherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. Uh, so for climate adaptation, I think the, the biggest challenge is to find a way to make this economically viable. Uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about equity. There's a lot of discussion about uh, doing enough that will move the needle on carbon. But in my opinion, I think the way that this has to begin is to make it economically viable and actually to incentivize the, or, and to reward um, actions that will reduce carbon in the atmosphere. And here's David Patisti, an atmospheric scientist at the University of Washington at Seattle. I, my number one concern about adaptation is to try to create new varieties so that they thrive under higher temperatures. Now this has been something that the international um, uh, crop research community has been working on since 1970s and they've made no progress, zero progress. Uh, heat is a very complex trait to breed for and so in particular one center that's been focused on this is the Center for um, uh, uh, Wheat and Maize Production in Mexico City, international research program in, uh, for creating new varieties. They've been working on this problem they've made no progress. I mean there's always been, oh we have a, maybe a promising avenue here, promising avenue here, but there's been no progress. Here's Kazuki Saito. He's a physical climatologist at Japan Agency for Science and Technology. Well, one thing is that due to the climate change or recent global warming, um, so the infrastructure is being damaged, like a, you know, thawing of permafrost or, or deepening the active layer thickness make the, the gas pipelines or streets, railroad and also buildings have, um, have a great Im impact on that, uh, from that. So the, how, to, how to deal with these changes uh, induced by the, the growing warming is, is the, 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 the greatest challenge I see, I mean, in, in my field. Then I met Andrea Simonelli, Assistant Professor of Human Security at Virginia Commonwealth University. I asked her what the biggest problem was. It's political will. Can you tell me more about that? <laughs> sure. Uh, the political will to really do what needs to be done. And what that means is not really being able to follow the same economic trends and the economic backers that back politicians to keep their power structure, essentially guide where we've been going the last 30 years over the cliff into the abyss. Do, do we need to change our politics in the United States to change the economic uh, incentives? Well, it would be a big difference if we could get the money out of politics, although I don't see that happening overnight. It's really about having the type of representatives that really care about being responsive to the people because most people who are in vulnerable areas will be have already been vocal about their needs. It's right. about actually being responsive to them. Okay, so now you're ready for the hopeful part. Here you go. Are, are there any rays of hope? Anything that makes you slightly optimistic about Oh yeah, I, I'm, I am optimistic in a number of ways, a number of reasons. So, um, firstly, I think that there will be, um, there, there will be economically efficient alternatives to um, uh, to fossil fuels for energy, not just for energy production, but also with, um, for energy uh, storage, so hydrogen fuel cells and so on. Um, I think the important thing is not to encourage people to use them because they're the right things to use, because 
only a small minor minority will do that. I think what the, we should need to do is invest in making them very economically competitive. Um, and that, that will ultimately drive down the value of fossil fuels for energy use. Of course, fossil fuels will have other. Fossil, um, well, hydrocarbons will still have other uses in, for example, production of plastics and various um, chemicals, and I think that will carry on. But on the other hand, you know, plastics, uh, they can be a problem for pollution, but at least they lock up carbon. Do you see any rays of hope? I do, actually. Uh, along these same lines, I think that uh, you know, there was this quiet revolution that happened uh, just a few years ago, which is the, uh, the uh, cost of producing an electron of electricity through uh, renewable finally became cheaper than fossil fuels just a few years ago. And that's led to this, you know, explosion of, or of deployment in, in renewable energies. And so, you know, I see that as the genie is being let out of the bottle, the renewable energy genie is being let out of the bottle. And so, uh, you know, I think the ray of hope there is that there's an economic uh, backwind, if you will, to doing the right thing. If I, went, if, I, if I think back even five years ago and I think, like, the odds of us not at least doubling and probably tripling carbon dioxide before the end of this century are basically zero. Today, I don't say that anymore. Actually, um, uh, I think... The, the, the pace that renewables have come down in price and are being adopted around the world is really astonishing. I mean, every year I teach my one whole one course in climate, and I um, and I have to update those slides. And they've changed, you know, like from one year to the next, the amount of solar has gone up by a factor of seven. I mean, seven. You know, these are they're still small numbers, but it's going at such a rapid pace that. If, you, if we keep investing in, 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 in developing renewables and we develop a battery technology um, that solves this problem of you know, when the sun goes down, there's no solar, and when the wind stops, there's no wind, um, if we develop those batteries to, to store massive amounts of electricity, fossil fuels are going to be ancient history. Nobody's going to want to use them. Are there any rays of hope? What, what, what gives you hope when you think about adapting to climate change? Well, the multitude of mayors across the country that have started to see the need in their cities to start to make change. So there you go, a multitude of mayors. That was Mark Thomas at the University College, Peter Domenical at Columbia, David Battisti at the UW, and Andrea Simonelli at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm going to leave the last word for Maxine Burkett, our guest from the first part of the program. Maxine was also a participant at the Climate Migration Conference in South Korea and probably had something to do with getting me invited, which I'm very thankful for. And so I asked Maxine what ray of hope she sees. So my ray of hope, I think, is that um, I um, think we all have, I, as a law professor, am work uh, and working with law students on a daily basis and um, obviously and I think that the the fact that we have um, the privilege of having an education and a capacity to actually do something about it is um, one that comes with a responsibility as well and as uh, young folks that are so much better um, pre prepared in some ways for the future they're facing um, they're I think embracing both the privilege and the responsibility of acting um, with the the degree that they have, the experience that they'll gain, and uh, their vision for a different kind of future understanding the climate constraints. So that's very hopeful for me. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening. My guest today was Maxine Burkett of the University of Hawaii. We also heard short interviews from participants at the Conference on Climate Change and Human Migration, organized by the IBS Center for Climate Physics and held in Busan, South Korea. Our music was provided today by Lobo Loco and Pure Grease. You've been listening to Connect the Dots podcast by the Center for Progressive Reform. We're a legal policy center helping to build healthy communities, safe workplaces, and a more resilient planet. Check us out and subscribe to our podcast by visiting our website, www.progressivereform.org. Thanks. See you there.